0: This is uh, Pod for the Course, and I'm Tom Kaye, the Director of Communications for Washington Golf. Uh, today, uh, we have with us again uh, for the second time as Mike Wrist, and Mike is the volunteer historian for BC Golf House and the BC Golf Museum. Uh, Mike is also the official historian for the Pacific Northwest Golf Association, and uh, as I understand it, the BC Golf Museum is still Remains the only standalone golf museum in North America. And uh, Mike was one of the instrumental people who founded this uh, museum. It uh, is housed in what used to be the old clubhouse for the University Golf Club up there in Vancouver. And uh, this is now the second uh, podcast in the series with Mike. And the first time we spoke, we talked about the foundings of the Washington State Golf Association. Uh this is its centennial year. It was founded in 1922. And also uh by chance, the, the British Columbia Golf Association was also founded in 1922. So we had a lot to talk about uh in the first podcast. And uh, Mike Rist, thanks so much for being on with us again today.
1: Well, my pleasure. I'll just make one little comment. The Golf Museum is the only state or provincial uh, standalone golf museum in North America. We have the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame in Glen Abbey, which is present. I guess it's going to move. I just got the notice today they're moving to another golf club. And then, of course, we have the u s j Golf Museum in Far
0: Hills, yeah. New Jersey. Yeah, so state state or provincial golf museum. Yeah, there you go. And I did actually, speak, speaking of that, I did give that notice as well, that the World Golf Hall of Fame, which is right at the moment is in Florida, and the USGA Museum, they're going to condense into one place at the new golf house in Pinehurst, North Carolina. It was um, did you, Very is interesting. That right? Yeah, I thought so too. So they're combining that, and they're going to they're going to move to the new headquarters there at the, at the golf house in at Pinehurst, in North Carolina. So yeah, uh, Mark,
1: go ahead. That was the original. Uh, before they moved to Florida, the Golf Museum was actually, uh, and the Golf Hall of Fame, World Golf Hall of Fame, started in Pinehurst.
0: Oh, so I didn't know that.
1: Be moving back to where they started, and and, you, and the USGA Golf Museum is moving there too.
0: Well, a, uh, you know, I, I would be surprised. Actually, I'd have to re- reread that press release, but they're. They are establishing a new, for some reason, and, and, and I'm not sure how they're going to divide all this up, but they are establishing a new USGA museum there in North Carolina to be combined with the World Golf Hall of Fame. And they gave a list of uh, items that they're going to house there, you know, like Bobby Jones's, uh two wood that he used in the Grand Slam, things like that. Uh, so I don't think it's the whole USGA museum. I would be a little surprised at that.
1: I would be, too, because they have an enormous collection, an enormous library. The yeah. lobby room alone, would I'd, I wouldn't want to guess how many artifacts are in it. It's probably uh-huh. a site, uh, and they're going to take special items. Yeah. And comp- yeah. Because the collection in, in Florida actually never belonged to them. Everything was on loan.
2: Uh-huh.
1: They actually had very few items in their own personal collection.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and so yeah. that would that maybe that whole area is going to fold
0: possible yeah i was surprised to hear that and uh but it'll be good you know they're they're really dedicated to uh creating this golf village of some kind and that pinehurst resort there in north carolina so uh mike uh Again, so today we, I think that uh, we discussed earlier that maybe we picked this up, uh, conversation up um, as for here in the Northwest. The evolvement and the increasing number of uh, significant tournaments and championships that started to be held in our region kind of in the late 30s and the early 40s. Uh, there was a dry spell, not a dry spell because there really was not much going on other than regional stuff, but the national scene and the spotlight really started hitting the Northwest in the late 30s and early 40s. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And there were basically two influences why it started. Uh, I must confess, I until you asked me to work on this project, I didn't really understand the relationship of things like Why was the Canadian Open held in Vancouver in 1948? It never made sense. Why was the Canadian amateur here in 52? And when I started doing the research, I thought, first of all, the list kept expanding, expanding. We're talking basically about national championships and the formation of the PGA Tour. And really, There were two areas that influenced the whole thing. And one person and one group um, attracted these events. And because they were so successful, it just seemed to mushroom. And uh, I found it absolutely fascinating researching the project.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk about uh, some of these influences. Well, well, first of all, um, you mentioned the Canadian Open, and the Canadian men's amateur coming out to the Vancouver area why what spurred that uh, was that the was those the, were those the first years that they were held out in on the west coast in Canada
1: yeah uh well it, it was the second time for the Canadian. um mm-hmm. but i think before we start that let's dis- discuss what was taking place in spokane and in portland that caused all these tournaments to come here, okay, and in spokane i I had actually never heard of this group um the uh athletic round table
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: they started in nineteen twenty as a small group of businessmen in Spokane began meeting I think it was the Quest hotel every Friday for lunch, just a few of them, half a dozen, ten or so. And they were all keen, keen sports guys. And all they talked about was sports. And then as their group grew, they then decided to start bringing in celebrities, sports celebrities, like in the 30s, late 20s. And they would bring in prominent uh, baseball players like uh, uh, Babe Ruth and DiMaggio. They'd bring in coaches, uh, uh, managers of these baseball teams. Then later on, they would bring in football players as football became more popular um, as speakers once a month. And they financed it. And it took me a while to figure out how... How they got their money, uh but they were uh controlling the slot machines in various places in eastern Washington,
2: mm-hmm. so they
1: you know had good access to funding so they could bring these celebrities and then, in the twenties, they started financing sports programs in uh, in Spokane, like the hockey team and Gonzaga University, they sponsored the basketball teams and, and they started building playing fields like Memorial Stadium, which is now called the uh, uh, Ab Joe Ab- Elby. He was the guy that started the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's now called the Joe Elby Stadium, named after him, because this group financed all kinds of things until... Oh, it appears maybe the late 60s, early 70s. He passed away, and then I read one report that by by the end of the 60s, early, it had basically disbanded. I guess he was the guiding, like he was the guy that kept the whole thing going. And um, so in, right after, when the war started, um, they decided to, host the uh, USGA public links at Indian Canyon. (laughs) And um, they wanted to make sure it was fantastic. It was the best event the USGA had ever held. That was their objective. And they certainly exceeded it. Um, They uh, made sure everybody had lunch every day. They had Barbecues every night, and when it was all over, um, the USGA said, "Wow, well, we'll be back. This mm-hmm. is the event that we have ever held." <laughs> um, if you can mention who who actually won it, uh, uh, California basically dominated this event. I think this was the eighth win for the player uh, James Clark he was from California. Uh, he had, California player won it 8 out of 10 times. But um mm-hmm. a, who everybody might know who, who knew early history of golf in Spokane um Bill Welch uh, he, well oh, I'm sorry he actually won it. Uh Yeah,
0: it looks like James Clark was the medalist and uh yeah,
1: yeah. And um Bill Welch he was from Texas. And it was held in in August, I believe. And uh, it was really, really hot. Most Mm -hmm. players can stand the heat. Um, But being from Texas, he was right at home. And he went home, and then within about two or three months, he moved to Spokane. And he started working in the electrical industry, I think what we would call the main hydro company in the area. And he became a pro. Um everybody I forget which golf course he was associated with, but the name Bill Welch in the pro circle really well known. So that was that started this chain reaction of all these events coming into Spokane because these were very, very good at hosting events
0: the uh I, I i know a little bit about uh this athletic round table and it's always kind of struck me that in Spokane in the 30s and the 40s you know that was a a small area that was not not much it's not exactly a, a a metropolitan magnet so to speak and the the fact that they could do this and had enough uh initiative and uh, enthusiasm to 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 figure this out, how to do this, has always been remarkable to me.
1: Yeah, I found it amazing. Like in 1920, I think I looked up the census, and and I don't think there were 5,000 people in Spokane. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: And, you know, here these guys were, like, I guess, the prominent businessmen of the area, and they decided to start building up funds and sponsoring things and, and basically putting Spokane on the map. Yeah. Um, the basketball team was all financed by this roundtable, uh, and they became a very good team. Uh, they had a local hockey team later, the Western Hockey League, and they were always well-funded, and people started playing tennis. And Yeah, it, it, I, I honestly had never heard of the group, but I became fascinated by
0: it. Yeah looks like uh, I, I'm looking at the, the history book for Washington golf and the uh, 1939, Joe Albee, who, Joe Albee, who you mentioned, founded this group, uh, the round table group, but he hired Bud Ward to be the executive secretary of the round table. And Bud Ward, as you know, he, the previous year in 38, he had won the Washington state open, the Washington state amateur. And in that year in 1939, he won the Northwest Open and the U.S. Amateur. So this was, you know, they went after people to, known people to to be involved with their organization.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, uh, one of my favorite stories about Bud Ward, uh, he won the U.S. Amateur in, in 1940, or was it 39? 39 and 41.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, in 1940... Uh, Kenny Black had won the Canadian Amateur in '39, so they had this exhibition in Vancouver to raise money for the Red Cross, uh, and they they billed it as the North American Champion Amateur Championship of Golf uh, at Shaughnessy Heights, and uh, they drew 10,000 spectators. It was mm-hmm. a 30. 30- Match and it went to the 37th hole, and mm. and Bud Ward won on the 37th. So mm. I I've always liked that a little, a little yeah. story. I know about yeah. oh, Ken Black. I used to caddy for him, and, at mm. Capitol, and he loved telling me stories of, of playing golf in the 30s and 40s. I have another one that I love telling, but we'll talk about it later. But mm-hmm. um, Bud Ward played a lot of golf in in Vancouver. Uh he played in the Lionsgate Open uh which was in 39 and the uh well, Western Canada Open was in 39 and the Lionsgate Open was in 1940 and they were used to uh supply money to the Red Cross for the war. Mhm. He was well in uh, Yeah. in uh, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And a great and that, that yeah. probably led to the next tournament that they sponsored, in which Bud Ward won, uh, and that was the Western Amateur at Um uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. run the Western Golf Association. And um, and now they wanted to get in on the act, because mm-hmm. these guys knew how to run these incredible golf tournaments. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it was a total success. Um, Ward won, and he had also won uh, previously in 40 and 41. So uh, uh, I think he actually, what did he win? for altogether? I think he won again later in 47. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great player, an absolutely incredible
0: player. Yeah, yeah. Um, so continuing on with this, this mysterious roundtable, athletic roundtable, folks. They didn't stop there. They they got they got some big events to come even after that. Um, well, the next yeah, we'll go ahead. Yeah,
1: really big. 1944 PGA. PGA um, yeah. had a major problem. Nobody wanted to host it because mm-hmm. they based to finance it, and um, so who was going to do it? And these guys stepped up. They said, sure, we'll host it. Uh, and then at equal time, another fellow appears in Portland who starts influencing the PGA. That's Robert Hudson, Bob Hudson. Uh, he, uh, Larry Lamberger did a really good thing in 1944 uh, because the PGA was starting to reactivate after the war. Uh, he got Hudson to sit as on the advisory council uh, of the PGA, and that was a really good move. Uh, Hudson was a prominent, prominent wealthy businessman in Seattle. He absolutely loved golf. He was a member of the Portland Golf Club. And uh, he started financing a lot of items for the PGA to get it up and running again. And, Later on, we'll see one of his major contributions to, mm-hmm. uh you know, golf. But uh, at the same time as the PGA was being held at Manitou, he said, oh, I'll uh, revive the uh, PGA Tour and sponsor the biggest event ever uh, at the Portland Open. In
0: 1944, was that right?
1: Before, yeah. Uh, right. It was... of the Evergreen Tour. Uh, The Evergreen Tour actually started in 1936, and here's one of my favorite Northwest uh, trivia uh, stories, again involving Ken Block. Uh, In 36, uh, Fred Corcoran, the the tour was only one year old, so he's trying to promote it all over North America. So he comes into the Northwest and he convinces Portland, uh, Tacoma, Seattle, Victoria, Vancouver, and Spokane to hold an Evergreen tour. And basically every event was $3,500 purse. Uh, Vancouver was 5000 and It was the biggest uh, event, actually, the biggest purse for the pros uh, in the United States and Canada, except for the Tam O'Shanty. And uh, it was celebrated as the Jubilee for Vancouver. So uh, I think it was August, uh, and the pros were all playing in the Northwest. And uh, uh, in those days, uh, Corcoran just sent the players off basically as he thought they might uh, attract the crowds. He thought, well, I'll send off some good players in the morning, and that'll attract a crowd in the morning and then I'll send off better players or equal players in the afternoon. It wasn't based on their previous scores. Okay. So Andy Black, this is the, how he used to tell me the story, and he he loved telling the story to everybody that would listen. So he's standing on the uh, 10th tee at Shaughnessy uh, on the final day, and Byron Nelson has already posted a score that a Appears to be the winning score, and he's playing with Vic. And uh, he says to Geezy, says, and they're just playing in two Uh If I shoot 29 on the back nine, I can beat Nelson. Well, 29 is, you know, pretty amazing score. But he had already done that many times. He, his father was the pro at Shaughnessy Heights. He grew up playing golf at Shaughnessy. And he'd shot 29 many times, not in a tournament, but unofficially. So he knew it was perfectly possible that if he got hot, got a hot putter, he could shoot 29. Well, he did. And he won the tournament. (laughs) So here's the trivia question. Who was the very first amateur? to win a PGA Tour event. Well, everybody will say, oh, well, Bobby Jones won the U.S. Open. Or Chick Evans won the Western Open. Well, at 1936, those events were not official PGA Tour events. Mm -hmm. Black is the official trivia winner first amateur to win an official PGA Tour event.
2: <laughs> there um, you go. Tell, them, whenever
1: tell that story, everybody will say, oh, that's not true, Mike. Western amateur. But they weren't tour
2: events.
1: Yeah. Uh, so at Manitou, uh, at the PGA, uh, mm. Nelson, uh, he, he was the medalist. And uh, he actually lost to a total unknown known by Bob Hamilton, which was absolutely unheard of. Uh, yeah. Snead didn't play because he was in the military, still in the military.
0: Yeah, and at that that time, the PGA Championship was held as match play. Yeah.
1: Yes, that's correct. Uh, yeah. I, I believe it was for a while after, When not I forget now?
0: it was. Yeah, I don't remember what time they what year they stopped, but uh yeah, you're right.
1: I think it continued max play for quite a while. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: but in the Portland Open, uh Snead uh his uh, oh that was in 45. Uh Nelson won again uh in the Portland Open. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that wasn't part of his famous year. His famous year would come next in nineteen forty five.
0: Yeah, when he when that had that streak. So uh that was forty four. So in nineteen forty five that Evergreen tour they continued and they made a pretty good uh showing in the northwest area. It looks like three or four tournaments, correct?
1: Yeah, it started expanding. And of course, again, um <laughs> uh, the round table fellas They expand their, I I think I have the pronunciation correct, Esmeralda Open. Mm -hmm. It had started the previous, uh, in 1943, but it was a very, very minor event. It didn't Mm have a big purse at all. So it didn't attract, you know, the the pros. But now that this Evergreen Tour, it's got to stop in Seattle. It's got to stop in Tacoma at Fircrest the Esmerald becomes a big tournament and again it's sponsored by Hudson uh in uh, in Portland so now it is very attractive for all these pros to come to this area um mainly because it's you know it's worthwhile they, these are really high high uh, purse events i think they Yeah and they
0: and there's several in a row, so it's worth, worth it for them to come out and make the little tour through the Northwest here.
1: Oh, absolutely. The only disappointment, that, and I never quite understood the way everything fitted, but I guess nobody in Vancouver would raise the price of the BC Open, or raise the purse to this level, like the mm-hmm. purse for the BC Open in the 40s and even into the 50s was like $2,500 for the total purse. Uh, and nobody would add on to it to make it part of this Evergreen Tour, which was a real shame. Um, Congdon used to play, and he used to play this, this tour, and he played some other tour, and the odd um, pro from, from the Evergreen would come up and play. But they all wouldn't come because the purse wasn't big enough. Um, and I don't understand why. We had a fellow in Vancouver, much like Hudson, um, um, Norgan, George Norgan. He he owned United Distilleries. And when he died in, in the early 50s, he was considered one of the wealthiest men in Canada. Um, and... and just as a piece of trivia, because it's very appropriate today for a speech I'm giving, uh, in 1946, uh, the Marine Drive Golf Club, who's celebrating Brayant's 100th anniversary party tonight, um, they, uh, the uh, holder of the mortgage for the golf club uh, wanted paid. Uh, he had an offer of $50,000 to pay off the mortgage so he, the Marine Drive golf club was given 30 days uh, to come up with $50,000 in 1946 uh which was impossible and Morgan paid off the bill so they could keep the golf club he was he was a member at Marine so mm-hmm. I don't quite understand why he wouldn't have uh, have pay uh, increase the purse so all these pros uh, would come to Vancouver. That's a mystery to me right at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. Because he financed all kinds of things. And there's another interesting little piece of trivia. And I, I, I'm great on trivia. And if anybody <laughs> knows where this trophy is today, I would love to know. Uh, uh, I'll preface by saying that... Um, In 1940, the Boeing factory in Seattle had two satellite factories in Vancouver, one on Sea Island and one in Chilliwack. So Norgan decides to uh, set up a series of matches between the uh, employees in Seattle and the employees in Vancouver, and he financed it. And uh, they had a home-and-home series. And it it was a star-studded field because uh, the Boeing factory in Vancouver had all the top pros, Kenny Black, the Canadian amateur champion. Um, And in Seattle, they had all the top amateurs and pros who were working for Boeing. Uh, And this tournament went on all through the war. And then, again, when I was doing this incredible research for your project, I discovered that the Norgan Trophy, which he put up, was played for in Seattle until 1955 by club from the Seattle Golf Association area. And they were eight-man teams, and they played a Ryder Cup style. So maybe in one of these clubhouses in one of these, in in Seattle, there's this trophy called the Norgan Trophy, mm-hmm. and that's what it's referring to. And Norgan yeah. was great for donating trophies. I can go all throughout this province, and there will be a Norgan Trophy sitting in the clubhouse from the 40s or 30s or into the 50s. And uh, he used it to... Uh, advertise his United Distilleries. So, uh, so mm-hmm. I don't know. Why, uh, after doing this research, he wouldn't have funded this BC Open to be to be part of this Evergreen tour. It it really confuses me, but maybe one day I'll you know find the mm-hmm. answer.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, 1945. Now, how about 1946 and uh, a couple of large events in the northwest as well. And uh start with maybe the the one in Spokane. Again the, yeah, the round table came through on this one.
1: Yeah, they came through on a couple. They they started this national uh jun- Junior Chamber of Commerce, uh Junior National Open. Um and they financed it. Um and it was, I guess probably the very first time that uh, Al Mingert had come on the golf scene. Unfortunately, the first one, it it wasn't too successful. There were only 24 players because it hadn't got the national recognition yet. But the following year uh, in, uh, I think it was St. Louis, I could be wrong. It was in the Midwest. It now had national exposure and a full field of juniors and Mengert beat Hitler in the final of that one. But he mm-hmm. did win the first one, and he, he beat a person that I'm sure everybody could be aware of, who grew up in Spokane, Spike Beeb- Bieber, who is mm-hmm. a prominent member in the PNGA. Yes, uh,
0: former long-time board member, and uh, actually he was the one who helped found the PNJ's magazine, Pacific Northwest Golfer Magazine. Yes, uh, Spike is well-known in the Northwest, absolutely.
1: But Mangard then started this illustrious career in the Northwest. Wow! Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And there are and if... lots, lots of stories you can talk about Mangard. Um, mm-hmm. One in Vancouver in '52, or uh, oh, no, in the P.N.G.A. in 1950, 50, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. The P.N.G.A. Man- probably the most one of the most memorable matches ever in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. all kinds of stories about Al Mingert. Um, and I I used to love sitting at his table when at the PNGA annual meetings, he, he, he attended a lot of them, which, uh, mainly because of Spike, I think, because he was always there with Spike and, Mm -hmm. um, the fellow from Seattle golf club helped me out. Um, He's, he's on the USGA council. Oh, Bruce yeah. Bruce Richards.
0: Bruce Richards, and, yeah. Um,
1: and I love sitting next to him. And he he was always talked to me about the matches and the and stories about he and Stan Leonard playing in the in the Masters. Uh, they would always play practice rounds together. I, I love sitting next to him. Al. Full of mm-hmm. stories.
0: Yeah, he had a very interesting career. He went on to play professionally, like you said. I I can't remember how many times he played in the Masters. Uh, I think he he holds the record for the number of times playing in the Masters without getting an actual invitation. In other words, he earned his way in there.
1: Yeah, he finished in the top ten every year for, I think, a decade. And -hmm. then he was able to come back. Um, Yeah. That was the same as Leonard. Leonard got automatic exemptions because he won uh, the Canadian PGA eight times. So he got automatic exemptions. And Mm -hmm. then he was, I think, finished in the top ten six times. So he got invitations to the Masters also.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Al got a tenure every year because he finished in the top ten.
0: Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So the junior boys national championship, the first one at Indian Canyon in 1946, and then in 1947 the same junior is held, and Al meggert wins that one. He defeats Gene Littler, and then in 1948 was the first year of the USGA National Junior Championship. Did they did this junior boys national championship that the roundtable start? Did that become the US Junior Amateur?
1: That's correct. Um, USGA took it over. They could see now that it was a national event because of the field. Uh, uh, I'm pretty sure, because I looked up in in the newspapers, uh, the second one, the 47, and it seems to me they had like 250 juniors at that event. Mm. It was incredible.
2: Um,
1: Mm. So now the USGA would say, automatically wow we have to use this as a national tournament and i think uh-huh. it was following year the western junior was formed it was very mm-hmm. soon after uh and now we had two national very prominent uh, national junior events but it was mm-hmm. again a round table through the uh Chamber of Commerce, I think it was then called the National Junior Chamber of Commerce, and these fellows were basically the chapter in Spokane for the Junior Chamber of Commerce. Uh, So they said, oh, we'll host it, for sure. And again, it was so well organized. The kids were treated like royalty, and um, and it it just took off. Uh, But again, you know, this is after the war. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of money around to finance golf tournaments, but Mm -hmm. these guys set the stage. Mm -hmm. Somebody write a book about this organization.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well and and they they kept going so in nineteen forty six the first junior boys national championship, which they started, and also in nineteen forty six the first women's national open
1: exactly yeah. uh, and again they financed it um they put up these twenty almost twenty thousand dollars in u s treasury bonds and um and and patty bird who at that time was the most prominent, uh, probably the most prominent female pro in, in the United States, probably the world, actually. And she won. But another big winner, which, again, I found kind of cool, uh, was her caddy. <laughs> she gave a $100, a complete set of Patty Berg irons and woods, a bag, but most of all, because it gained after the war, golf balls were not that plentiful. Rubber mm-hmm. was being used for the war effort. She mm-hmm. gave two dozen brand-new Patty Bird golf balls, which uh-huh. were more than $100. like uh, gold. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So anyway, she was the winner, and, and she got a $5,000 fund, and... But the caddy walked away as, as a real winner too. Uh, uh-huh. So I had a neat little side story to the mm-hmm. event. It was the it, this was the first, and it was match play. But then again, from then on, it was all uh, stroke play.
2: Yeah, uh, and, and then I, again, I,
1: yeah. Uh, I forget when the USGA. I think they took it over.
0: They so did. Yeah, began, they took it o- Took it over the next year, nineteen forty-seven. So the first one in 1946 with the round table stars, it was played at what was then called Spokane Country Club. And you're right, you're right. It was match play. It was the only one that's ever been held at match play. Exactly. And then uh, USGA took it over in 1947, the next year.
1: Yeah. And and then again in 46, another major event comes because of Bob Hudson. Yeah. EGA in Portland.
0: PGA Day championship. Day, um, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: back to the northwest. And uh and Hogan won. And, uh he he beat uh, a Porky Oliver who uh I think at that time he was pro at Inglewood and uh, and he became a prominent uh northwest pro who was a, again another big big supporter of the BC Open in in, uh, in Vancouver. I don't think he, in fact, I'm sure he never won the BC Open because he was mm-hmm. in the, Stan Leonard and, and Chuck Congdon. And when you look at the record book for the BC Open from 1948 until 1961, I believe it is, uh, Stan Leonard or Chuck, Chuck Congdon won or finished second in every event but one, they absolutely mm-hmm. dominated that tournament. Mm-hmm. Porky, Oliver didn't really. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So that was 1946 PGA Championship. So that was, uh, it was the PGA Championship was held in 1944 at Manitoba in Spokane, and right. then in 1946 at Portland Golf Club, and that one was uh, uh, spearheaded by Robert Hudson. Yeah,
1: because they needed.
0: Sure. Yeah, sure. And Hudson wasn't done uh, again after it was, this was right after World War Two and not much money going around and people still kind of coming out of the fog of World War Two. But in 1947, he, he also did something pretty significant, brought something out here. Yeah. Yeah. He
1: he sponsored the Ryder Cup. And there there's two or three stories that I just I found that I found Absolutely fascinating, connected with this uh, Ryder Cup matches. First of all, uh, one reporter, Ben Ben Wright, he was the official reporter that followed these matches from England. He was the only British uh, reporter that there, his newspaper would finance to come. And it turned out that Hudson paid the bills for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um but the Ryder Cup matches uh, could have folded at this point because the the people in Britain had no money to finance to come here. And, yeah,
0: and it was wasn't held at all during the war. It had had stopped uh, because yeah. of the war, and there was you're right. There was significant doubt as to whether they could even keep it going after the war.
1: Exactly. So again, uh, Hudson said that he would finance it. And he went over to Britain, picked them up. They came over on the boat. Uh, He treated them like royalty. They first class, first class across the country on the train ride. And uh, they get to Portland. Everything's paid for. Um, There is one little story that Ben Wright tells about in his biography, which is a great book if if you want, if you like uh, biographies. Um, This was probably one of the strongest uh, Ryder Cup teams ever assembled, uh, according to all the reports. And uh, Henry Cotton was the captain of the British squad, and Hogan was the uh, playing captain of the um, American squad. So they get to Portland, and just as a needle, as trying to get some sort of advantage, because Cotton could see they didn't have a chance, and as the okay. result, they didn't. It was 11 to 1. Um, so the day of the start of the matches, and, and this is how Ben Wright tells it, um, Henry Cotton calls for a ruling. He believes all the U.S. Players' clubs are illegal <laughs> are too deep and Hogan is absolutely livid and he actually never ever forgave cotton for pulling this. US team going over in 49 and he financed the British team coming back in 51 and I think he passed away in, I better not say it was in the 50s so mm-hmm. he ended then. but he was really really generous
0: um, yeah very generous so uh, the what we're talking about Hudson, Robert Hudson the Hudson Cup matches uh started in nineteen
1: forty nine. Right. Mm-hmm. And Larry Lamberger started it. Because Hudson was doing all this for the pros, he wanted to recognize Hudson's contribution to golf. So he started the Hudson Cup matches in the Pacific Northwest. Um what ten amateurs versus ten pros, am I correct? That's correct. Uh, yeah. I th- I think that's the way it was. And they're still going today as a mm-hmm. tribute to um, Hudson. Mm-hmm. But in 1950, I, fo- I found a clipping. Hudson's now thinking about uh, some other matches that he wants to start and, and sponsor. And you will know Pretty soon, what kind of matches, it wasn't successful until quite a few years later. But he had the first vision. He wanted to expand the Ryder Cup and the Walker Cup into a worldwide country matches for a team composed of professionals and amateurs From teams from every country in the world, including, as the reporter said in the Oregonian, uh, Russia. Mm -hmm. He wanted to create a worldwide match. Well, today, it's only amateurs, but it's the world amateur, and Mm -hmm. the pro is now called the World Cup. But he had yeah. the first vision to do that. He wanted to sponsor it. He wanted to start it. It
0: mm-hmm. never yeah. got So Enough for a while. He'd
1: have been an amazing guy to meet. Um, yeah.
0: And I, I heard this on the side. I, maybe you can confirm it. But when they started the Hudson Cup matches in 1949, he found out about it and he insisted on funding it.
1: Exactly. Uh, Larry Lamberger wanted the Northwest PGA or the PGA to finance it. Mm
2: -hmm. But it's,
1: and I guess Lamberger must have kept it quiet because Hudson didn't really know about it until I think and the first place it was played was Portland Golf Club. Lamberger was the pro there. And Mm -hmm. Hudson had no idea. And then, yes, you're absolutely correct. Well, I'm funding this thing. Nobody's going (laughs) to pay for it any (laughs) it for many years after uh, uh, but they must have kept it quiet
0: uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: until that was going on that he he even knew about
0: it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that lamburger they were just doing it as kind of a tribute to him to hudson and uh he was having none of that he was he was gonna he's gonna fund it <laughs>
1: oh absolutely yeah, yeah. he uh it, it was amazing. Uh, just prior to that was the Canadian Open in '48 at Shaughnessy, and because Tour um, uh, Evergreen Tour was prominent, that's why it came to Vancouver. Uh, I should, until I did this research, I hadn't put two and two together. I'll be very honest. Why would this tournament uh, come to Vancouver? We couldn't even finance a. Uh, Increase the purse of the BC Open. It, it never made sense to me. But the RCGA wanted to tap in to this a group of pros who were playing this Evergreen Tour, and they made sure that the Canadian Open was the biggest purse um, of the Evergreen Tour. I think it was $10,000, where all the others, I think, were $5,000. There might have been one at 750 dollars but they made sure it had the biggest purse, so everybody obviously came. And Chuck Congdon won. It was a, a great tribute to Chuck that he all these uh, tour players. Leonard finished third. Um, very disappointed. He he never won a national championship in Vancouver. So I used to, uh, at, when the Golf Museum opened, Stan became a really, really good friend of mine. Uh, at the museum he he loved to come by at least once a month on Sunday afternoon and we would just talk and uh, he he opened up so many stories to me and whenever i was writing a story all i had to do was phone him up and say stan can you give me an anecdote or something about this about this person and and uh, he he would always come through for me and the amazing part about Stan, uh, I met him, he, he came to the museum, he was in his 90th year, it was about a month before he passed away, and, and we were talking as usual. I could never trip that guy up on a mistake, okay. a date, a tournament, a score. I, I could never trip him up. It was amazing, his memory, his recall. Um, I lost a great source of stories when he passed away.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: amazing guy. And then the Canadian Women's Open, um, a Canadian women's amateur. It came in 49 to Vancouver to Capilano. Again, I wondered why. But these women's tournaments uh, were all coming and the Northwest was getting to have a, a really good core, of very very good amateurs led by Dean and and um, Gracie, uh, mm-hmm. so Gracie
2: Damas, yeah.
1: Reasons, mm-hmm. but again, I I don't think you can stress it enough. These two organized Hudson and the Round Table, they started this whole thing for this decade of incredible golf in the Northwest. And if you were a good player or you loved good golf, I don't know of another decade when you were really treated to top-notch golf in the Northwest.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, you know, I, it, In this area, in the 70s and the 80s, uh, we had some senior tour events come out here, but it it always felt like there was nothing much going on from a professional level. And then you start looking into the history of the PGA Tour events and the Evergreen Tour, and there was a lot of tournaments happening here in the mid-40s, late-40s, and early-50s there was a, a lot of the stuff it, you know Byron Nelson held the scoring record for years at uh when he played at the Seattle Open at Broadmoor Golf Club and uh and people are not familiar with the the incredible history of golf in this area I don't think from from that era
1: well you could definitely write a book on the fifth uh, golf in the northwest in the 50s uh mm-hmm just to show how prominent a sport and how all every top player came here uh amateurs oh and later on we're going to show an, another person who had another influence in 52 when he started the morse cup and and it was to bring these top amateurs from Uh, California to increase the quality of play in the PNGA. Um, And it brought Littler and Venturi. uh, And then later on, we're going to see the America's Cup come here. Um, So the the Northwest in the 50s, the average golf fan was really treated to top-notch golf incredible mm-hmm. more than sure we've had the PGA and we've seen Tiger Woods and and we've seen but nothing consistent just these mm-hmm. iso tournaments
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah um and i i noticed that the like the US Open uh did not come to the west coast until 1948 you know, it's first held in 1895. Did not come to the West Coast until 1948, when it was held down at Riviera in Los Angeles. And uh, you know, to me, is remarkable. So, but 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 also, I think it just speaks to the westward uh, expansion of of big time sports and and name sports. You know, it's it's a, back then. It must have been a real journey and a real significant commitment to come out to the West Coast to To compete, I would think
1: oh absolutely, like um it you, there had to, it had to be a really big event, and it, obviously the pros would never have come here without the evergreen tour you had you couldn't drive, and they drove uh mm-hmm. long, long distances for one tournament it wouldn't yeah. make sense um yeah. so this evergreen tour brought all these. Well the best pros in in the country uh they'd be stupid not to come here. The purses were just as good as Florida as california as as the east um and they well, there were enough of them to make it worthwhile uh in the winter time. A lot of the Northwest pros used to go play the California Tour uh because there were like three, four, or five if you went over to Arizona. Uh, around Christmas, January, February, so you could make money. Um, and so in in the August and September, this evergreen tour did the same thing as the winter tour in California.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I, I it's it's a little difficult for us to understand that, but you're correct. They mostly drove wherever they went. Uh, it wasn't like hopping on a flight. Uh, and you could get there in in a couple hours. no it wasn't like that at all Even there was train, of course, but even that was a was a significant journey.
1: They all traveled by caravan by car from one mm-hmm. tournament to the next um mm-hmm. and that's basically how the p g a tour operated well Stan, even the sixties his big Cadillac he did a new one every year, and he he never flew. He just traveled his wife and his daughter during the summer, traveled in the Cadillac from tournament to tournament, and Stan had a rule that he never played more than four. And then he came home he needed a break. He had the nick of the cash-registered tourist to pro because he wouldn't stay out there for more than four tournaments, maybe five. And then he would all the way back to Vancouver. Uh, get a break and Mm -hmm. uh, and, but he made money I think for a while Leonard held the record for the most times finishing in the money on the PGA Tour I think it was something Mm -hmm. like he had made he had cashed a check now there were breaks in between but he didn't play so it didn't count Mm -hmm. Uh, but he drove he drove his car
0: Um, Mike, this has uh, been a great conversation. We're speaking again today with Mike Rist, the uh, uh, official volunteer historian for the BC Golf House and BC Golf Museum, and also the historian for the Pacific Northwest Golf Association. Uh, Mike, I'm thinking we might have to do a a third chapter of this podcast because this is all fascinating stuff. We're just now barely getting into the 1950s. (laughs) So um but for now we've covered the uh the forties and the fifties and the and the sort of expansion of of really quality golf tournaments and golf players, competitors who uh found their home in the Northwest. And really it seems like Mike the, the two uh catalysts were Robert Hudson and also the athletic Roundtable table over there in Spokane. They really kind of were forerunners to a lot of significant uh, golf events and golf tournaments.
1: Oh, absolutely. And when we do the third one, uh, we should start with the men's Canadian amateur in 52 and the uh, U.S. amateur. But probably I think we should mention uh, the 1950 PNGA Capilino semifinal Elmenger during. Uh, versus Ray Weston, probably one of the most memorable matches ever played in the Northwest, but I never realized it until I interviewed Harry guyvin. The final uh, was probably just as significant as the semifinal. Menger shot 62 in the Match play semi and 63 the following day in the final to beat uh, Guyman. Wow. It's also a significant match, and maybe I, I'm looking for it. I hope I haven't lost it because it could be one of the only copies left. Again, the round table at work sent. A radio reporter to Capilano and sent back the live broadcast, hole by hole, to the Spokane radio. And I, 20, 30 years ago, I managed to get a copy of the full round as it was reported on the Spokane radio, hole by hole. Shot by shot, taken at capolino. I don't know of another radio broadcast like that.
0: So, you have the actual broadcast from that year, from that match?
1: Tournament, from that semifinal, hmm. uh, hole by hole, every Mengert and Weston shot. Um, I got it, oh, in the late 80s, strictly by accident. Um, I was at a golf collector's meeting and some guy said, have you ever heard a radio broadcast uh, of a golf tournament? And I said, no, I've never heard. Well, he said, you know, I have this tape. Mm-hmm. And um, it's taken, it, it's somewhere in Canada. And mm-hmm. it's, of course, Capilano, I've never heard of it. Maybe you would like it. And I said, yeah, I'd love it. Well, it turned out to be the full broadcast of this match between Mangard mm-hmm. and Weston. Mm-hmm. And wow. I I haven't seen it for years but it's got to be in this museum somewhere.
0: Mhm. Yeah, that was remarkable. Yeah. Again the athletic round table at work.
1: Yeah, again they, they had the vision that Mangard was a big uh, was one of their big fans. They were Mangard's biggest fan. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe it's true. I don't know. Maybe they went everywhere where he did and recorded mm-hmm. these things. I don't know. But anyway, mm-hmm. that's probably why uh, this was broadcast back to Spokane, because L was involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't shock. Maybe there's one for the year he won uh, the second uh, national junior. Who knows?
0: mhm. Uh, and Al, Al is a. He was from Spokane, right?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: Jim okay. McLean's uh, teacher.
0: Jim McLean was his instructor?
1: No, uh, Manger taught Jim McLean.
0: Oh, M- Manger taught McLean. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's mm-hmm. why McLean, one of his favorite drills, and he credits Al, uh, the most important. Drill in golf, for a beginner, uh, according to Jim McLean, is the toe-up, toe-up drill that was originally Al So Al used to sit at the table. You'd get up, pick up a fork or a knife, and he'd show, Mike, have you ever seen the most important drill in golf? And it's my drill. And I always said, no, I've ne- you've never showed me how." And here he would toe-up, toe-up. He said, <laughs> they can learn how to play golf in a month by accomplishing my toe-up, toe-up trip.
0: go. <laughs> cool. All right. Um, again, we've had Mike Rist with us today. Uh, Mike is the uh, uh, main curator, volunteer historian at the BC Golf House and BC Golf Museum. Mike, thanks so much for taking your time today. And think we
1: have to, enough material for another one. So
0: we do. We're going to have to get this on the books to do another one for this. We'll do a, a what's called a trilogy, I guess. Maybe even we'll do four chapters. Who knows? But there's so much material and so much history in golf in the Northwest. It's all fascinating stuff, and it's great to be able to put it sort of recorded here and 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 uh, have it for for all future use.
1: We should definitely Thanks. have one for the remainder. Yeah,
0: of it. yeah. Thanks again, Mike.
1: Uh, okay, you it. have a and, weekend and. And uh, hit them all straight. Okay. You too. Hope okay. Mike strong
0: Okay. Thanks, Mike.
1: Okay. Bye-bye. Talk anytime. Okay. Bye bye.
0: Bye bye.